Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. It's Friday, April 7th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Am I wrong or did you, like me, get the impression that the lead up to the Trump indictment and arrangement, the big question, the huge question was something like would brag or wouldn't brag? It was not. It was, was brag brave, not was Bragg wise? There wasn't so much, is this thing going to work? It was more like, dare he bring it in the first place? There are plenty of people pre-poo-pooing the indictment, or there were, but most of those seem to me to come from MAGA world, maybe some of the usual Trump defenders. The tension was less, is this going to be a good indictment versus is this going to be an indictment? And a little bit, a lot of bit of excitement that this might be an indictment. I don't know. Maybe it's like UFOs. The chatter is, do they exist? Don't they exist? You hardly ever hear, yeah, I mean, we think they exist. They just kind of suck. They're not really good spaceships. No one ever says that. Or ghosts, right? No one ever says, yeah, okay, sure, ghosts exist. Let's stop with that talk. But they're just lame. They can't really walk through walls. They don't even float. Maybe they moan a little bit and make you chilly. Because since the indictments have been proved, the existence thereof, I have been noticing that there is a lot of coverage saying, wow, these aren't strong. Wow, the potency of these indictments are fairly underwhelming. And you know what? That sentiment was out there beforehand. It just wasn't maybe being forefronted in the places it's being presented now. A couple days ago, I quoted from Vox, a Vox article saying it was weak. And then just the other day, Mark Joseph Stern in Slate said the same. And then there was John Judas in the Liberal Patriot. So that's not in the category of the Liberal Patriot. He's a center-left guy, but he wrote a good article. Bragg's indictment of Trump is nothing to boast about how a weak New York case against Trump may do more harm than good. The Washington Post's Ruth Marcus, who's kind of a center of the Democratic Party type writer, like if Nancy Pelosi had a column, she'd be Ruth Marcus. She weighed in with the conclusion, maybe Bragg's theory of the case will turn out to be solid, maybe not, but this feels like a dangerous leap on the highest of wires. New York Times published an op-ed by law professor Jed Sugarman, who wants Merritt Garland to bring charges, all right? But his article was about, quote, the Trump indictment is a legal embarrassment. Oh, my. I appreciate all these perspectives. I note they're not the only ones out there. So I checked in on the usual sources, the usual political sources that I pay attention to, the podcast, to see if anyone broke ranks out of their ideological silos or concluded in a way that I wouldn't have predicted beforehand. That did not happen. Let's check in on MSNBC's official indictment podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump. They have a vested financial interest in the prosecution of Donald Trump, if they're going to name their podcast that, after all. Co-host Mary McCord says it is a strong indictment. 
The statement of the facts comes right out of the gate, framing this case really as part, I think, of the whole Donald Trump assault on democracy. And her fellow former prosecutor, co-host Andrew Weissman, agrees this was a big, bold swing and a quality cut, one bolstered by the information that was a little away from the four corners of the indictment itself. And Alan Bragg went out of his way during the press conference to say, this is routine. And it's routine not to charge them just as misdemeanors, but also as felonies. That exact point, citing the Manhattan DA's press conference as necessary to interpreting the strength of the indictment, is what so very annoyingly sticks in the craw of David French, co-host of the Dispatch's Advisory Opinions podcast. A lot of people were trying to sort of salvage what was, in my view, plainly inadequate indictment by pointing to his press conference. Because in his press conference, he laid out, well, there's this other New York state law regarding promotion of a candidate, conspiracy to promote a candidate through unlawful means, which is only a misdemeanor itself. So even with that, it's one misdemeanor contributing to another misdemeanor equals a felony. Um, And then there were other people really grabbing onto oblique references to New York state taxes. So broadly, podcast from MSNBC, whose programming is most dependent on an audience that's salivating for the prosecution of Donald Trump, they conclude that this particular prosecution has sharp teeth. The dispatch made up of never-Trumpers, who are nevertheless conservative, have concluded that Alvin Bragg is gumming at Trump with baby teeth at best. Over on the Strict Scrutiny podcast, part of the crooked media network founded by former Obama staffers, their legal experts say, yeah, good prosecution. Here's Professor Leah Lippman. You know, I feel like it's pretty clear that they have established a New York misdemeanor, the falsification of business records. And then I also think we learned at least one additional thing from the statement of facts and the indictment, which is they apparently do have some texts and email exchanges, um, I think, between Michael Cohen and other people that suggest they wanted to delay having to make the payments until after the election in the hope that they wouldn't ever have to make them. And that's some pretty persuasive evidence that they were doing all of this to influence the election. And that could go a considerable way to proving that they were falsifying business records in order to conceal or commit some other crime. So I think they laid out a clear case for why this satisfied the threshold to bring a prosecution. You know, do I wish that we were going to get a perfect case wrapped in a bow that actually held Trump accountable for all of the worst things he did to our democracy? Sure. But I think that the path to an attempted coup and like insurrection is paved with a bunch of other legal violations along the way. And so holding someone accountable for some of their thumbing the nose at the rule of law is is a good thing. She did not predict that it would be a successful prosecution, but she and her crooked media co-hosts all agree this was proper. My producers and I searched for voices who were calling this a strong case who might be surprising, not the voices or expert you'd expect to say that. And we found that if you found someone saying, clearly warranted, gotta bring it, super dangerous for Donald Trump, they were always affiliated with an outlet where the audience very much wants to hear that sentiment expressed. 
we couldn't find any contradictions of that trend. Now, okay, listen to what I'm saying clearly. You can find experts on CNN who say weak prosecution. Ellie Honig was one. He was on the show voicing doubts. As I just read to you, you could read experts in the Washington Post and the New York Times saying they're skeptical of the indictment. And this isn't to say that if you hear someone say, well, it's all curtains for Trump, that the person's personal motivations for coming to that conclusion were anything less than legitimate. But it does say that with all these media outlets that consumers can choose from, you can always easily find the expert opinion that will satisfy your priors. And I'll blow the whistle on myself. I don't know exactly what my priors were, but I'm a lot more excited by the, huh, maybe this wasn't as strong as we thought type argument than hearing the usual people who've always resisted Trump saying Alvin Bragg was right to resist him this one time again. I am not sure what the judge will think, and we have until December to hear, but he really is the only one who matters. On the show today, inside the Tennessee expulsion hearings. But first, when Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank failed in early March of this year, regulators chose to use taxpayer money to make their depositors whole. This set a precedent that experts like my next guest, Aaron Klein, think could weaken the foundation of the U.S. banking system. Klein is a former chief economist at the Senate Banking Housing and Urban Affairs Committee, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Economic Policy at the Department of Treasury, and all-around true expert. He thinks the failure to allow a couple banks to fail or some of the people who invested in the banks to take a haircut will prove costly down the line. A man who does not mince words about banking reform, Aaron Klein, up next. A few weeks ago, the banking system looked like it was on the verge of being on the verge of teetering. So that's a multi-conditional phrase. But things weren't looking good. SVB, First Republic, Credit Suisse, Credit Suisse. Now, maybe we've stabilized, but how and why? And will we last? Will there be ballast for the long term? No one I want to talk to more than Aaron Klein. Listen to some of these credentials. Between 2009 and 2012, he was Deputy Assistant Secretary at the Department of Treasury, and he secured passage of Dodd-Frank. He was the Chief Economist of the Senate Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs Committee for Chairman Chris Dodd and Paul Sarbanes. So you got the Dodd of the Dodd-Frank. There's your Sarbanes of Sarbanes-Oxley. He was also instrumental in coming up with TARP, the rescue plan that covered us all, as one would a rainy baseball diamond, I recently found out. And Aaron Klein is the Miriam Carlin Chair and Senior Fellow on Economic Studies at the Brookings Institute. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on. Tell me how much of a uh, bullet we dodged and how close it came. Well, look, you know, I, I'm not so sure, first of all, that we're out of the woods yet. Uh, as you know, my experience was shaped through the 2008 crisis. Remember, Bear Stearns failed and was bailed out in March. Uh, and then we had uh, Fannie and Freddie in the summer, some more bank failures and ultimately Lehman Brothers in the fall and then the catastrophe that you discussed. So, one, the idea that you know where things look good after the initial set of bailouts means we've dodged the bullet. I don't know. I don't believe that this is like two thousand and eight. Two thousand and eight, the financial system was infected. It was down with this disease of subprime mortgages that had 
gone through the entire system. Uh, I don't see a similar problem here. I think the root cause of this was idiosyncratic bank bad management coupled with lax and or captive regulation. I don't think that's an endemic problem the way it was in 2008. But idiosyncratic that was replicated again and again across different banks. So there were multiple banks that had, look, a lot of banks had losses like this. Not all of the banks had losses that were in excess of their entire capital, right? So were there four or five or six other banks? Could there be more banks? Sure. Is it the entire banking industry that's out over their skis with unhedged interest rate risk the way Silicon Valley Bank was? No. Signature and Silvergate, the other two banks that failed, were pretty deep into crypto. They were the only two banks that had these internal blockchain trading platforms. Uh, are there other banks into crypto? Sure. Uh, is it Has it infected the entire banking system? No. But I'm growing more and more concerned about these bailouts, mm -hmm. that every time we have these problems, the answer is giant bailouts. Uh, uh, and I'm growing more and more concerned that the bailouts themselves have become the systemic risk to the system and whether or not we're really building capitalism in our banking system or we're building a system where the rich uh, in good times pocket huge bonuses and in bad times get bailed out by Uncle Sam. Well, the specific rich in those banks lost, if not their shirts, their upside, right? Well, the CEO of Silicon Valley Bank was allowed by the Federal Reserve to sell $3.7 million worth of stock just weeks before his bank collapsed. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think was last pictured on a beach in Hawaii. So if, if losing your shirt means that you're uh, suntanning in Maui, then yeah, that's what happened. Yeah, but he sold his shares before the collapse. Anyone's allowed to sell before a collapse. No, 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 no. Bank CEOs aren't allowed to sell any day of the week that they want. They're insider trading world. Their regulator is supposed to ensure that, you know, they're they're not selling their equity, right? Somebody bought those $3.7 million worth and went to zero. Right, he's the one without the shirt, yeah. Right, and we know the CEO knew the true status of the bank far better than the person who bought his shares. And so these banking is supposed to be a regulated industry and the regulators seem to be, you know, uh, uh, asleep at the switch here. Right. At best case scenario, we can talk about worst case scenarios. Uh, and so I, I, you know, I, I you know, I, I sure, you know, did stockholders lose out on this? Yeah. Um, so, uh, but, you know, bank management didn't lose nearly as much as they gained, particularly during the years that the stock was tripling in value while accumulating these risks and all these bonuses were being paid out. But it doesn't surprise me that the regulators would have allowed the sale because what we know about the regulators was, as to quote the phrase you used, they were asleep at the switch. So I do have a couple questions about regulation. And one is, would more robust rules, rules that say Katie Porter and Elizabeth Warren are advocating, would they have caught it? But before I even get to that, should this have been caught Anyway, even if you ha don't have the tightest rules in the world, it would seem that anyone who wasn't asleep at the switch should have raised a red flag. No, Mike, you're entirely right. Look, when we talk about rules and what Congress is doing with the rules, we're talking about like the questions on a test, right? And so the way I think about it is the following. What uh, is being discussed in Congress, what Trump rolled back that applied to Silicon Valley Bank, that was the honors test. The question was whether or not Silicon Valley Bank should have been subject to the honors test. Under Dodd-Frank, as originally passed, it would have been. 
Trump rolled it back so that the Federal Reserve could choose whether or not to give it the honors test. The Fed said, please trust us because we'll know and we'll apply the honors test to anybody who's systemically risky. And oh, Silicon Valley Bank, they don't need the honors test. Oh, wait, they fail. Oh, wait, bail out. They're systemically risky. The questions at Silicon Valley Bank failed were the basic test. Yeah. And the basic test should have caught these folks. The Wall Street Journal had a front page story about their problems in November. Right. So, you know, would to answer your very specific question, uh, would would tougher questions have caught this bank? Maybe, maybe not. But if the person administering the test isn't grading it, isn't reading the answers, it doesn't matter what's on the test. And that's why I find some of these arguments that, you know, uh, so problematic, which is like, oh, if we just had better rules, we wouldn't have these problems. The rules don't matter if the enforcement of them don't exist. Right. It's like to be decreed Kobe beef, the cut of meat has to qualify in these 18 different ways. But this is not... This is not even close to Kobe beef. This is, you know, a dead cow rotting on the side of the road. We don't need these advanced methods to figure out if it passes muster. No, and, and this is, you see some of the, the the folks, there's like a Federal Reserve ecosystem yeah. that's going all around. And you'll see some of these in, in, in op-eds. There was one today in the Washington Post. It was just like, oh, if we just had a smarter rule, if we just had a smarter stress test, a smarter test, a smarter, and it's these model lovers, right? And they just think, oh, every time the model fails, if we just had a better model. And the problem with their logic tree is the logic tree always goes the following. If we had a better model, if the model was perfect and we always did what the model said, then we'd always do the right thing because the model's perfect. So assume a perfect model and lo and behold, you should follow the model. As somebody who lives in planet Earth, not planet model, the model's never perfect. Silicon Valley Bank, the a simple model should have had. The fact that the Fed couldn't figure this out 15 years later ought to be an indictment about what they're doing in the whole thing. COVID, there's no model that would have predicted that. Nobody could be, you can't fault the modeler for not having COVID. Now you can fault the responses under COVID, right? But there's always going to be a problem that the model doesn't catch. And, you know, no, it's stunning to me. These folks are talking about improving the model. Let's go to a different point, Mike. The CEO of Silicon Valley Bank sat on the board of directors of the San Francisco Fed that regulated it. Does that sound like a good idea to you? Well, what do I know? I'm, I'm just still going by the old model. The, the, yeah. The, the San Francisco Fed was the one who was in charge of regulating them and in charge yeah. of administering and grading their test. So you have a teacher who's in charge of grading your test, but the CEO of that bank is sits on the teacher's board of directors yeah. And the answer is, oh, if we just had a better test, that, I mean, that, that's the absurdity of it all, right? Which is where, you know, I think Bernie Sanders had a has a bill in there that I think Senator Warren's also supporting to get Bernie, calls them big bank CEOs off the board. Why shouldn't all the bank CEOs be off the board? By the way, what's the definition of a big bank? By many measures, Silicon Valley Bank didn't qualify five years ago as a big bank. Right. That is the crux of the issue as maybe Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren posits it, which is that they were against the Dodd-Frank rollback where banks with assets at least 50 billion used to be subject to a stress test. And then that threshold was raised to 200 billion. Your point is, I'm hearing you again and again, beside the point, it doesn't matter what the uh, levels were, they should have been able to pick this up. But I do want to 
to ask you, if we talk about a Senator Klein, Senator Aaron Klein, would you have voted for that provision if it was up to you? So, look, you know, it's very hard to go back because it's not just one provision. It's a whole suite. That is correct. Of provisions, right? There are a lot of things in that bill. And keep in mind that the law didn't say under 250, you're not applied. Mm-hmm. That's a common misunderstanding. The law, the, the prior law was over 50, you're applied. The change was under 100, you're not. From 100 to 250, the Fed has the discretion or the optionality. So the Fed had all the authority to apply these same rules to Silicon Valley Bank starting in 2020 that they did before the, when they crossed 100 billion, that they did before. And they didn't use their discretion. So, you know, I, I, I'm, I, I, think, I think focusing just on the law lets the Fed off the hook with its discretion. And this is the point I want to make where you say you're Senator Klein. Congress can legislate rules. They can't legislate competence. They can't say by law, you have to do the job right. Right. So I guess to I'll channel uh, my inner Senator Warren. We know that it can't legislate competence. And we know that there's often a lack of competence and some of this crony capitalism and revolving doors. That's why we have to have very strict rules to make up for the fact that we can't just assume competence. Yeah, no. And therein lies the question, which is, do you fundamentally want to change who's doing bank regulation? Do you want a central bank also being a regulator? You, you know, Mike, I, sometimes I try to get philosophical when I think about this. Um, and there's a, a, a philosophy in, in ancient Greek philosophy about a telos, which is a true priority. It says everybody can only have one true North Star, one right. telos, one guiding principle, Right. If everything is your top priority, then you've prioritized nothing. So you have to be honest with yourself about what your top priority is. The Federal Reserve's top priority is monetary policy. It always will be, and it always should. That's completely appropriate. That's their telos. Interest rates, the economy. Bank regulation is not. Payments are not, right? You know, research and statistics, not quite, but a little bit closer because it aids and abets their telos. So I, I think we as a society keep giving the central bank in America more authority because we think that they're competent in their telos. And then we get surprised when they fail us in other elements that aren't their telos. And I think that's where we ought to step back and ask the core question, which is, you know, should, you know and, and this is, you know, look, look at the COVID relief. Rather than give money straight to, you know, Workers, we developed these convoluted bank shots where the Treasury Department would take taxpayer money and give it to the Federal Reserve to, you know, create a special lending facility and the Fed would buy loans through banks that would then help Main Street America, right? The whole thing was a big facade, right? The yeah, Fed, What yeah. the Fed did do was it bought junk bonds because it wanted to help junk bond funds, right? So, you know, it helped out junk bond investors. Uh, and, and I think we as a society and Congress in both parties have put too much stock in the central bank to do a bunch of things that are not its telos. How would you reform it? I've made you a senator again, I guess. Uh, you know, I, I think you ought to look at, at taking bank regulation out of the Federal Reserve and moving it to the bank, creating a bank regulator, a central bank and a lender of last resort. We can debate you know, and then a consumer and investor protection regulator that regulates from the perspective of the person, not of the entity 
You know, one of the problems when you're a bank regulator is you think that make a bank failure means that you failed. Yeah. You, do you know how many banks there are in America, Mike? Oh, must be in the thou- many thousands. It's it's about 4,800, a little yeah. under 5,000. It varies a yeah. little bit. How many banks do you think should fail in any given year? Well, I happen to know, because I did my research, that the first year without a bank failure was, I th- tell me if I'm right, 2005? Correct. Yeah. In, in, in all of American history, at least one bank had failed every year in 2005. I think that's a good thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that there are some failures, that, that if you're terrible at it, you can't continue. If Right. If we had the same 4,800 banks every single year for the next 20 years, is that good? No. Right. So regulators, and I've said this to regulators on stage, I say, you know, you regulate this number of institutions, you know, how many failures you want? Because the right answer shouldn't be zero. But regulators have a hard time embracing that their institution should should fail. And in point of fact, as you pointed out, in 2005, no bank fails. And then the same thing happens in 2006. Yeah. And the regulators come before Congress. I was working in Congress as a chief economist at the Senate Banking Committee. And they tell us, we are awesome. We have one regulation because look at how great and safe the right bank system is. Banks don't even fail anymore. They're so well regulated. Now, of course... That meant it was the worst regulatory system and the greatest collapse anybody had seen since the Great Depression, because the only reason none of them were failing was they'd structured all the tests and were looking at all the wrong things. Right. So I think the problem becomes we have a set of bank regulators who don't want to tolerate failure, who panic when they're failures, who freak out. And then the message that American people get is, well, the government won't let this fail. You know, too big to fail is not just a concept about size too big, but about whether or not you can let anyone fail. And I wish they'd let Silicon Valley Bank fail. Yeah, so they should be less like the FAA, never have an airplane crash, more like something like, I don't know, the FTC, that some consumer products are going to fail. And then you have good, robust methods of dealing with that. I do want to ask you about too big to fail. There's the... uh, there's the SIFI. Is that how you guys in the know pronounce it? So the term systemically important financial institution actually in law refers only to non-banks. Oh, okay. Most people don't, don't, don't know that because the conversation has said, well, they're the SIFI banks, systemically important banks, and then the other banks. The way the law was written was actually the opposite. SIFI was meant to capture like an AIG, like these mm-hmm. things that got bailed out that weren't regulated like banks. Right. Otherwise, I guess they'd be SIBs, right? So Correct. Systemically, systemically important banks. Right. So, SIBs but the question is, so there is this, just by having, it's one of those things, just by having the designation, it implies that there are some things outside the definition of that designation. But in practical terms, uh, no one said it officially, but unofficially, it seems like every bank is too big to fail and every institution or every bank is a systemically important bank. Well, this is the problem with going down the path that they went down of bailing out the un- the uninsured depositors at these two banks, Signature and Silicon Valley. You know, they, they bailed them out using this authority called systemic risk exception, which lets the government bail out the people that should lose money if two-thirds of the Federal Reserve, two-thirds of the FDIC, the Secretary of the Treasury, in conjunction with the President, yada, yada, kind of everybody turns the key simultaneously and invokes this special authority. And so they did it for these two banks. And then the question was, well, what about my bank? What would happen right. to me as an uninsured depositor if my bank failed? And Secretary Yellen went before the Senate Finance Committee. 
uh, and Senator Lankford from Oklahoma kind of said, well, what about my banks in Oklahoma? And she kind of answered a question and it was a little more confusing, which was, you know, if a little bank in Oklahoma failed, would you invoke the systemic risk exception? Yeah. For a bank that clearly doesn't have it, other than if you let their uninsured depositors fail, one, how do you face a senator from Oklahoma and say, well, you know, uh, Roku and all the Silicon Valley bank tech guys, they were important, but, you know, Oklahoma, your businesses, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so instead, there's now been this kind of comment that they're just saying your deposits are safe, which is this ambiguous term hinting that if any bank failed in America, they'd invoke the same systemic risk exemption, arguing that an inconsistent treatment of that small bank would invoke a run on their whole system. But step back and ask yourself, what does that mean for the logic? That means their logic tree is. Be, once you bail out, because we bailed out these two big banks that we didn't regulate as systemically important, but then when they failed said oopsie daisies, that then tells the rest of the world that we have to bail out everything. So the systemic risk has been injected into the system by the very regulatory bailouts designed to, pre- to prevent systemic risk. It, it, it's very confusing, but it begs the point that we need to ask and focus more on was this the right response than asking the question, well, what better rules can we have so that this doesn't happen next time? I know that this phrase gets looked at askance, but what you describe seems to me the very definition of moral hazard. Yes, it's absolutely. Look, you know, moral hazard is a powerful principle, right? Your your car insurance, right? Your car's insured. But there are exceptions to that. If you leave the keys on your dashboard, right, the car insurance company doesn't have to pay for a stolen car. Right. Right? You have some responsibility to run yourself in a better way. Part of, you know, what I'm arguing is that people who put large sums of money in their bank, 98% of Americans are roughly have less than $250,000 in any bank account. So it's only the very rich and mostly big business And big business has to pay a little attention. That's a system FDR set up. When Franklin Delano Roosevelt set up deposit insurance, he specifically capped it so that big money had something at risk and skin in the game and they had to keep an eye on the bank. Now you see people talking about unlimited deposit insurance. Yeah. They should probably communicate. We'll give you something of a haircut on the way out. The idea of the haircut should have been put on the table, I think. Yeah. uh, Right. And by the way, this idea they couldn't make payroll, man... Roku had 500 million bucks in the bank. They would have had access to 300 million immediately. And on the extra 200 million, they would have gotten probably half or not of more of that. Yeah. Anyone think you couldn't have streamed your show on Monday because Roku didn't have all that? And the the 10 largest companies at Silicon Valley Bank had $13 billion in deposits. Mm -hmm. The the federal government, the FDIC, you and I are going to pay... $18.6 billion to bail out the uninsured depositors at Silicon Valley Bank. That's almost the whole cost of the thing. The thing cost $20 billion. Yeah. Aaron Klein is a longtime congressional staffer. He is the Miriam Carliner Chair of Economic Studies and Senior Fellow in the Center on Regulations at the Center on Regulations and Market at Brookings. He's quite skilled at pruning the decision tree, as we have heard. Thank you so much, Aaron. Hey, that was a lot of fun.
And now the spiel. The Tennessee legislature voted to expel two members, young black men, Justin Jones and Justin Pearson, yesterday. Gloria Johnson was spared those efforts. She's white. The three, last week, had taken part in an act of civil disobedience on the House floor. With the official microphones shut off by the Republican chair, they continued to address protesters advocating for gun reforms, and they did so by use of a megaphone. What happened was the two Justins pulled out the megaphone and engaged in calls and response with citizens in the gallery. This was out of order and a violation of the rules, which they knew. They were led off the floor by some of their fellow Democrats, who make or made up less than a quarter of the 99 seats in the Tennessee House of Representatives. Again, clearly out of order and also kind of shocking, and not just to Republicans. After all, Three Democrats took part in this rule violation. Two of them had to combine less than five months in office. Jones was sworn in in January. Pearson won a special election, was sworn in in February. He, by the way, wore a dashiki to his swearing in, which was criticized by some of the same members who would, in short time, vote to expel him. But again, there were three participants. 20 other Democrats did not participate. Among them were fellow Democrats who pleaded with them to stop. All of the other Democrats defended them at yesterday's hearing. If you hear justification of the three's actions that rely on phrases like expression of free speech or they did the right thing because they were on the right side of an issue, you might say to yourself, okay, that's true. But remember, literally no one else in the Tennessee House took the steps that they did. And that includes members whose constituents lost family members in the Coven School shooting last month. But if you hear justifications from Republicans in favor of expulsion, as you did on the floor from the Republicans in the House, know this, it was a massive overreaction. And also, it was clearly politically motivated. Punishing the rule breakers in such an extreme manner was itself a violation of norms, and yes, technically even rules. So first, to get a sense of the arguments that the defendants put forward, let's check in on Justin Pearson's opening statement. Power to the people, power to the people, power to the people, power to the people, Hosanna. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the Religiosity and God abounded in these proceedings. Here was one of his defenders, Democrat Johnny Shaw. There's a story in the Bible about Jesus coming down from the mountain early in the morning. And when he arrives at the temple, and I'm sure many of you read this, these men said to him, Master, we caught this woman in adultery in the very act. And we know what the law of Moses says. The law of Moses says, stone her. Killer. But what do you say? The Bible says Jesus wrote something on the ground. 
This particular brand of argument did not go that far, mainly because there were earthly actions to consider. Pearson justified his actions this way. But there is something that tells me it is not uh, the rules being broken. It was what we were advocating for that folks have gotten very upset about. His fellow, let's call him defendant, Justin Jones, wrapped up his defense in taking offense to the Senate itself. There comes a time where people get sick and tired of being sick and tired. And so I came as a representative to this well. And so today we are brought to here where members are responding in the most extreme measure, not because of what we did, but because by breaking the quorum, we broke the glass of your false power for the world to see. We broke the glass of this chamber that someone called sacred. One of the members on the other side of the aisle was in tears and said, I've never seen such a breach of this sacred chamber. Jones went on to question the sanctity of a chamber that sanctioned slavery, that erected statues for enslavers, statues with Jones protested as an activist just a couple of years ago. And a legislature, to Jones's point, that has done nothing on the issue of gun control. These young men are passionate and They also did wrong, fellow Democrats noted, but who among us has not done wrong? These young men deserve forgiveness. They're new here. They didn't know the rules, and Republicans in this chamber weren't even sticking to their own rules by playing tape of the incident recorded from the floor last Thursday. That was the argument of Memphis area Representative Joe Towns. And they didn't know anything about it. That's called an ambush. Sneaking behind the bush and hitting somebody in the head with a brick. That's not fair. One of Gloria Johnson's defenders, Sam McKenzie, tried to humanize her. You know, her campaign tag is standing tall. And that's what she does. That's kind of who she is. She's not loud. She's not long. She just, but she stands. But appeals to mercy, justice, proportionality, or God did nothing to spare the defendants, or two of the three defendants. The one thing that did was an appeal to procedure. Now, the official complaint against Gloria Johnson stated that she, like her fellow defendants, shouted, pounded, and pounded a lectern, and used a megaphones. And that is true of the two Justins, but not of Johnson. And her advocate, Jim Wendell, pounded home this point, just as Johnson did not pound a podium. At approximately 10.49 a.m., Representative Johnson and her colleagues, having gathered at her desk, moved in unison and began shouting without recognition. I challenge the author of this document to come to this well and to tell Tennessee and America that that's a true statement. It is an absolute falsehood that has been perpetrated on this body. No one came forward. This just wound up Wendell Moore. Again, a false statement for the second time, the second allegation, and both are false. Please come up and face the people and explain why you perpetrated a fraud on this woman in the state of Tennessee. Where is the sponsor of this document? It's unconscionable. The argument may have worked. Wendell peeled off enough votes, five Republicans, to spare Johnson, her colleague's fate. There was one Republican, Charlie Baum, who voted against expulsion in all three cases, but five more joined him on the Johnson vote. 
all of the coverage noted that this meant that two black men were expelled and one white woman was not. Johnson herself did many interviews saying the explanation for this was racism. Former Missouri Senator and current MSNBC contributor Claire McCaskill tweeted the names of the five representatives who voted to expel Jones and Pearson, but not Johnson, and wrote, These are the five. They voted to expel the black reps, but not the white rep. Make them famous. But maybe the procedural arguments actually held. Quite possibly racism played a role too. None of the decisions by any Tennessee Republican, except Charlie Baum, are defensible. The arguments of the main advocate for expulsion in the hearing, Republican Gino Bolso, was risible. They tried to shred our Constitution with a bullhorn. But I was saddened by the impossibility of any resolution other than total annihilation. Jones, for instance, expressed seething contempt for his soon-to-be former colleagues. But for so long, this body, drunk with power, has modeled for the world what we know as nothing less than authoritarianism. And today is the climax of that behavior. Understandable, given that an injustice was being done to him. But again, there are 20 Democrats who didn't voice such contempt. Those 20 have hundreds of years of experience among them. Jones and Pearson have five months Jones and Pearson are black, but so are 13 other Democrats who are frustrated, are fed up, are stymied. But they do try to work within the system, the tight to the point of often suffocating procedures. And you heard in Bolso's final arguments why he thought the two expelled members must face that fate. And we have no guarantee whatsoever that they're not going to do it again. Right now, the only guarantee that the Republicans won't further punish their enemies is the huge backlash against all that's happened, the unwarranted excesses we saw, and the fact that Jones and Pearson will likely be returned to the body quite possibly very soon by county commissions. No one really won yesterday, but the ledger of losses might be a bit different from what the majority party had contemplated. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the Gist's producer. He had a lot of tape to wade through today. Joel Patterson is the senior producer. He always does. Michelle Pesca is the VP of Philanthropy of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeeperoo, and Dooperoo. Don't shed democracy with a megaphone. Thanks for listening. <laughs> 